Hi, everybody. I'm Rogers Haley, the host of Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. And today we have a hero. A hero has joined our show, someone who has defended and continues to defend our freedom as a soldier, as someone that had a calling in his heart and his gut, went out to serve our country, much like his family did prior. And because of people like our guest today, we are able to go and live a life of liberty and freedom in the greatest country in the world. Uh, this person is going to give us a different gift. He's going to give us the gift of perspective, uh, grit, fortitude, faith, perseverance, love, kindness, everything. And we're going to learn a lot because um, what we're going to capture in this short time together is going to give us all a different reason to go on with our day with a smile on our face, uh, holding our head high because like our guest is going to show us today, no matter how hard you have it, you have the ability to push through. Uh, with all that being said, it's my pleasure to welcome Sergeant Johnny Yellock, the second to the Rogers That Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Boy, you are Jimmy Fallon to Justin Timberlake. What a really? heck of an elevator pitch. It's my, <laughs> it's my podcast in the box? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Very good. No, I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Honor to uh, you know, just have a chat with you yeah. uh, like we get to do. We've had a couple of collision points in life, you and I, Yeah. and I feel like every time... Um, you know, it matters. It's around something really impactful, obviously. and Nothing more impactful uh, than the Rogers That podcast. No, no, and that's yeah. where I was going with that. The, yeah, this, out of all the things that you've done, I realize it's all been I've made a build-up to, to this. I've made it. So, I can now say that I, I'm accomplished. Yeah, that's it. Congratulations. Uh, let, let, let's take a, a quick dive, and, and people that don't uh, aren't being able to watch this, imagine Derek Jeter at 28 years old, more chiseled with a custom blazer, that's what I'm staring at right now. But maybe get us, like, what, what got Johnny Yellock to be Johnny Yellock? Obviously, you have an incredible background, incredible story, not just from being a war hero and a you know, mortgage maven. You've done a little bit of everything, most of things that I would not even consider. Anything with the word dive, he's done it. <laughs> Skydive, um, scuba dive, um, deep dive. I've been to a dive bar. A dive bar? God, you're so, <laughs> you're so dive-verse. Uh, well, what I the... could not have become Johnny Yellock II without a Johnny Yellock I. So obviously, uh, uh, my parents are a huge part of my life, uh, even today, but uh, definitely a part of the beginning of my life, you would say. you know. But uh, both of them served in the military. My dad did 27 years. My mom did 20 years in the Air Force. And so I got to grow up all over the world, a lot of different cultures, people, places. Um, and I've been blessed to have my eyes open to just so many different perspectives growing up. And none, uh, none more so impactful than uh, the idea of service before self and seeing that in my parents. Uh, the sacrifices that they made on a daily basis to, you know, wake up at 4 a.m. and go into the, go onto the flight line and be gone all day and... Uh, my mom and dad having split shifts, working all night or then all day, and being there uh, enough. And when they were pouring so much of faith and goodness and love and kindness and affection, um, were you in DFW? Us. No, I was. My sister was born in Germany. I was born in the Netherlands. Wow. Uh, I lived in Iceland for a little while, and I grew up mostly in San Antonio. Which makes that's the natural progression from Germany to Iceland to the Netherlands to San right. Antonio. Pretty common story. Yeah, no, I've heard this so many different times. <laughs> if you went from you know slinging really nice flowers to right. selling you know tourist trips, and then yep. the Alamo. tulips at Kukanoff, and then uh, you know 
San Antonio. Yeah. Green Water River Walk. Yeah, I used to, you know, I lived in San Antonio too. Where'd you go to high school? Well, I started at Churchill. Oh, no way. Yeah. I went to Alamo Heights. That makes sense. Yeah, why? It does. Because I'm a great athlete. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so you but you, you but get us to where you There's so you, much drama in uh I was, I was San Antonio like, High School. Agreed. Sports. I was there for 6 months. I didn't like it. Uh, San Antonio listeners, I'm months. sorry. In San Antonio? In high school in San Antonio for 6 months Same. before moving here to Keller. Same, not Keller, but I went to I went to Highland Park here, and it was, yeah. yeah anyway, you started, you came here in the middle of your first semester of high school. I came here technically. Here's a fun fact, which has nothing to do with Johnny Yellock the second, but I'm going to share it. <laughs> I was a second semester sophomore in San Antonio. On the drive up to Dallas, my parents, right before we got here, said, "By the way, you're going to be a second semester freshman." So, yeah, um, and then maybe I'll interview myself one day on the, on the podcast, but it was just, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, but I was very, I was a late bloomer, um, was not a great student. I had ADHD and uh, dyslexia before it was trendy. And so as we're pulled into Dallas, literally like, hey, by the way, you're an innovator, you're going to be a freshman again. I was like, really? And then I got a Nintendo 64 to wipe away my tears. And I had a very similar story. I was Nintendo? doing exactly what I wanted to do oh. in San Antonio. San Antonio's military USA. Yeah. So there's nothing better than being an ROTC in San Antonio High School. And I was on the drill team and I was progressing and loved every bit of it. Wanted to go to A&M and then join the military. And as we were driving up to, to Keller, um, ROTC programs were not at all the best schools in DFW at that time. They were at the schools that needed like correctional assistance. I almost right? went there too, yeah. And um, so Keller High School did not have an ROTC program, so I went back in a band and played the tuba again and did that for the next four years. At Keller? At Keller. But so there was not ROTC? No. Okay. I, they had a good band. But we'll get what got So you went from, did you, why did you not want to pursue, pursue being a professional tuba player? Uh, I don't know. I feel like that question answers itself. It's just too stressful of a career. Too later much in the story, the you find that playing tuba for seven years did play an impact in my success in the military. So, well, so what got you in 2007? You decided to enlist, right? You have that calling. Yep. You have both your graduated parents. high school 2002. Went to college, got an engineering degree, and uh, you know, I would love to say that the turning point for me joining the military was 9/11, which happened my senior year um, of high school. Of high school. Uh, but in my family, it was there was no other choice to make than to go straight to college. So I went to college. I got an engineering degree. And I wish it was 9-11 that I could say, you know, that happened and I went. Unfortunately, I owe the credit to uh, Kevin Costner and Ashton Kutcher in the movie The Guardian. Are you being serious? I'm being serious. <laughs> it's so That's sad. Awesome. It's so There's nothing sad, sad about that. Uh, but uh, that is true. I was watching, in 2006, I was watching the fall of, of Iraq. I was watching the statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled down in my dorm room, fixed to the TV, and seeing the people around me had zero impact on them. Um, and I was just burning with a desire to do something more and to be a part of that and to be uh, of use to my country like my parents were. So it just so happened that I went and saw that movie, and I was like, I want to do something like that. Dude, where's my hero? That's that's the movie. That's Ashton Kutcher's going to come back and, and do a movie about you. He's going to play you. Um, no way, Ashton Kutcher once Ashton again. Kutcher. Strikes and Kevin so Costner. so you go back and you and walk us back. through the experience of, of enlisting the Air Force and the process where you had it. You literally have it in your blood. I you, had to make a call. 
uh, to the recruiter. The recruiter happened to be a prior combat controller, and I called him and I told him I wanted to be a pararescue man in the Air Force, uh, which is basically the exact same thing that those divers in the Coast Guard in that movie, The Guardian, were doing. Uh, and By the, the way, um, like most of us watching this, I've never watched the movie The Guardian, but now you will. You're, I'm gonna go. You've given it enough plug. I love Kevin Costner, and I secretly love Ashton Kutcher. Yep. So they were. We all do. Yeah, they so were. I made the call to the recruiter. He happened to be a prior combat controller. I told him what he wanted to do, and he said, "You don't want to do that. You want to be a combat controller." So uh, I told my parents I was gonna be a combat controller, and they basically talked me out of that. And I enlisted to be an uh, explosive ordnance disposal uh, technician, right? EOD, bomb squad. So I go to basic training, and I finish basic training. I start EOD school, and on the fifth day, the seventh day, you graduate and you go to uh, Florida for the next phase of school. But on the fifth day, you have a test. And I go out to complete this field exercise test, and I fail it once. If you fail it twice, you're kicked out of that career field, and you have to do something else. I went out and took the test again and failed it again. So now I go up into the office and they ask me, uh, what do you want to do now? You're either, you can choose another volunteer career field, uh, like special operations, or you could be needs of the Air Force, which would be, I could be a cook or I could be at the gate, you know, waving people in and checking IDs. And I told them I wanted to be a combat controller and they laughed at me because it's highly uncommon for you to fail out of EOD and become the tip of the spear as a combat controller and I went to the schoolhouse met the people there and never looked back it's been the one of the best decisions and examples of failing um, for good I love that what was it like going to combat for the first time uh, combat for the first how time how long how long from the time you enlisted from the time for, yeah I uh, started the combat control pipeline we go through two years of schools. So there's a 90% attrition rate. So 36 guys, four guys make it out the other end. Uh, and then another year of training before we're deployable. Well, but so, even with that, maybe like what, like the whole theme of this thing is, again, like just staying true to yourself. What did you learn by being the statistic, a good statistic where you had all these people essentially quit? I saw all these reps of people that thought they knew what they wanted to do. They thought they knew who they were and what they were fighting for. And they learned... Uh, in the pool uh, that this is not what they want. This is not what they're, they're not willing to put. You're saying the literal pool? The, line. the literal pool, yeah. As a combat controller and most special operations jobs, we have to train in the pool. So we're doing a lot of things underwater without air, and your job is to not quit, not give up. So I've met the wizard a couple times. Uh, my mom hates that, but basically you're completing a task Wait, underwater. Who's the wizard? And you... Uh, go until failure. So, an underwater. Who's the wizard? The wizard is, you remember old TVs? You're, you're not that old, but Older you turn you. an old TV off and it goes, pew! Yeah. That's kind of what it's like to meet the wizard. Really? So you, it's called a shallow water blackout and your body shuts down from lack of oxygen, but all your organisms are, or organs are good to go. They're just wet, ready for you to be brought back to the surface. So, the instructors That's are watching called this. meeting the wizard? Yeah. So you meet the wizard. The instructor goes in, pulls you up, and as soon as your mouth breaks the surface of the water, you'll take a breath. Unbelievable. 
I don't ever want to meet the wizard. No, you don't. Yeah. So, so you go to combat and I mean, what was, obviously we've all seen movies and we've got friends probably, but not to the degree that that you've been, but what was, what was the prep for that? The, the prep is just that it's getting those repetitions of seeing just exactly what your body is capable of, what your mind is capable of, right? Mind over matter and knowing that, um, you know, if you're intentional about what you're doing, you can accomplish anything. It may not happen the way you wanted it to or thought it would, but uh, you surround yourself with the right people and you're intentional about your craft and what you're what you're providing to the battlefield, and you just got to go for it. So my first deployment was in 2010, and uh, I wasn't supposed to go where I went. I went to do a combat search and rescue role, which is kind of a sideline job. Where were you? Uh, Northern Afghanistan. Wow. And... I was supposed to go to a different part of Afghanistan, but I had to replace a teammate of mine who got injured. He just cut his hand, small cut on his hand, but because of that, he couldn't deploy at that time. So I had to rush, and in a day, I had to go and go to North Carolina and then fly out in his stead. And he went and took my deployment. Uh, My deployment was to sit and stand ready on watch. I'm basically like a firefighter, but watching like the Jason Bourne room, all the TV screens. So you're watching the battlefield taking place live. Um, so I've watched loss of friendly and enemy live, uh, lives live and listening to all that, that radio chatter, just standing by and waiting and praying that mm-hmm. nothing happens, but knowing that I have to be ready in case something does happen so that I can go and take their place. So I would load a helicopter that had rotors turning with uh, a small group of people and we would fly to that location and I would take over the scheme maneuvers um, if I was called to do so. So uh, it's kind of like, you know, the Rudy Rudiger sitting on the sideline of the last game and then getting tapped, you know, saying to go and you rushing in and then, you know. Except he was trying to sack the quarterback and you're trying to go and make sure you don't get killed. Yeah, exactly. So that was my, my first deployment. And uh, three months into that, uh, September 16th, which is coming up this week, uh, Danny Sanchez, who was the, the uh, airman who cut his hand that I replaced, he was killed in combat. So uh, I took his deployment, and again, he took mine. So I was supposed to be where he was. And um, so that was pretty difficult. And... Uh, you know, I tell people that my first deployment was very tame, but it brought the battlefield home to my parents. My parents went to El Paso, went to his funeral in my stead. Uh, get back home, and 13 days later, uh, my best friend, Mark Forrester, was killed in combat as well. So, um, this in a matter of... This is in northern Afghanistan? Uh, different parts of Afghanistan. Uh, Mark was in Cobra, which at the time was, was uh, a hot place, 2010. And so lost two of my best friends. My deployment was very uh, anticlimactic other than uh, being fueled with a lot of fresh perspective and motivation to get back to the fight to contribute. So I came home. I was home for six months. Home, home? like Home, home. America. Yep. Yep. After my deployment was done, I came home and uh, spent time with the, you know, both of their families and then redeployed in 2011 to my second deployment. And that time, what I does was that there. does that mean? Are you called to go do that, or do you feel so? Called we to have go? a as a special operator, we're going to combat, right? It is a it was a an active combat zone, so we're going. The army has um, 
well, pretty much the military has a one-to-one dwell ratio. Army might be gone for one year and home for a year. In the Air Force, we're gone for six months, home for six months, and repeat, right? So I was gone for six months, came home, did all my currency, training, upgrades, and then you're ready to go again. When you're over there, is there any mental break for six months, or is it just... It's actually, uh, and this is a this is something that you wouldn't anticipate, but it is so much more relaxing and calm and mental clarity in a combat zone than it is driving around Dallas traffic. I trust you. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, You're not, we're not worried about going to the grocery store. You know, yeah. when, after I get off work, I'm not worried about paying any bills. I'm not. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sitting in traffic. I'm just focusing on my role, my team, and what we're here to do. We may not have a mission every single day, and when we don't, we're relaxing. You have one on job. Getting ready for the job. Um, do you have, and that, are you able to talk speaks, to your family and stuff? Yes, exactly. My next point, that speaks a lot to the value and the impact of military spouses, military families, and military children because – they're absorbing all of that stress at home while you're fighting for, you know, the absorption of the stress of an entire country. Yeah, no pressure. Um, so deployment number two. Deployment number two uh, was the, the deployment I was looking forward to. I was on an ODA, which is an Army Special Forces team, and uh, we were doing village stability operations. So uh, my job was to train and equip local Afghan local police officers so that they could defend their comp- their country whenever America would eventually pull out of the war. So that's weapons and uh, training, fighting tactics, giving them uniforms, paying them, giving them a schedule, helping them set up their barricades, right? We're facilitators in their war, and if something happens, we're there to support them. So I was only on the team for uh, a short amount of time, and... Um, it's incredibly important that I gel with my teammates because I'm a new entity coming onto an old team. I have to have a, uh, a personality and the ability to integrate with that team quickly so that there's no friction, right? So uh, in a short amount of time, I become one with them, and our job is to respond to anything that, that we get reports of. Can I ask a dumb question? Do you have like a nickname or do you just go by like Sergeant Yellock? Is there... uh, so we have call signs. Yeah, call signs. Yeah, we have call signs. And every combat controller's call sign is the same. We just have a different number based on what part of the country we're in. So it wasn't like a nickname? No. What was your... Jaguar, though. Seriously? Yeah. Well, that's a nickname. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, obviously, they got Top Gun 2 just came out. And... Yeah. So you were Jaguar? Yes. Did you get to pick that? Jag 4-0. Did you get to pick it? No. All combat controllers... So that if you imagine... So was there any other Jaguar, or is it just you? On the team, just me. But so what were the other names? One combat, only one combat controller on every team. But but you're the only Jaguar. I have a call sign... What was uh, that? ...of Jag 4-0. Whoa. Because a combat controller has two inter-team radios on my chest and a big one on my back so that I can communicate with uh, satellites. I can talk to the stock or the, the operations center back at headquarters of the big base... And I can also communicate with all my teammates, and I can communicate with the aircraft flying overhead in a combat zone. So all, you, all I need Jack, to have a Jack call 40. sign. Yeah. Jack so if we get into troops in contact or start taking enemy con- contact, and an air, I call for an aircraft, whenever they check on, that's how they know who I am. 
and different people that talk to aircraft in a combat zone have different call signs. So if if an aircraft checked on and heard Jaguar, there's a certain reputation assessed with that call sign. So they know who they're talking to. They know the type of person that's on the on the ground. And there's a lot of trust that we've built over the course of a 20 year war that they have the confidence that the information that I give them is going to be accurate, succinct, and timely, and give them the confidence to drop bombs close to friendly personnel. So you inherited Jaguar. Yes. What would be if, if the, let's, we're filming a movie, and let's say for random instance, I'm Heliwood. What would be, what's the call sign? in the movie it's not jaguar because other people have had jaguar and i'm sure you've thought of this but this is the one question i was most excited to ask that cannot be true what's the what's what's your what's your call sign we don't have i mean i don't have a call sign. come on you do i mean i have i have ops initials and i have a what's your theme song uh i love my favorite song is genesis uh, Land of Confusion. Oh, it's a great music video, too, with a lot of weird puppets. A lot of weird stuff. Yeah, um, but I can appreciate that. Phil Collins, a genius. What's your call sign? Please. <laughs> come on, Jaguar 40, Jag 40. What is it? It's going to have to come on a podcast 2.0. Okay, we'll be there. We'll get back. Okay, so. You determine the call sign at the end of the podcast. No, I can't. That's the thing with nicknames, is the only rule of nicknames you can't you come up with your own. think that Goose chose Goose? Well, he Jerry Bruckheimer, Jerry Goose. Bruckheimer probably chose it, and the screenwriter. But um, Jaguar would have been cool until I figured out you didn't choose Jaguar. I did not. Um, it, it, yours needs to be like it, like a Pretty Boy. That'd be a cool one. Oh, Pretty Boy's here, and he's just. Or when I was going through training, Gorgeous George, it was there was a popular song. Uh, I think it was a T Pain song, but it, it faded. I'm in out love with, with a stripper. It faded out with nappy boy and pretty boy. <laughs> and at the time, I had a little bit of a fro, and my friend was much better looking than me, so I would always be nappy boy. See, and pretty boy. There we go. That, and for the first time, we all heard this. Nap, nappy boy, yeah. nappy boy, Jack Four O. Take it. Okay, so um, all hell broke loose uh, on this yes. mission, and and, and I so wanted I was on my my seventh day in country, and. Uh, we were responding to, we were just driving further than we had gone before in the six days prior. And again, our job is to go and check on checkpoints, make sure they have what they need. So we were actually going to a village called Johnny Kale, and, which was to our south. And we loaded up on the trucks and head out. We're in a three-vehicle convoy of up-armored vehicles. I'm in the second vehicle with a team leader in the passenger seat. And my job as a, uh, as a CCT or combat controller is to be in the back of the truck, the open area, so that I have my Falcon view on my computer, which is tracking like GPS, so I can see where my coordinates are at all times. And I have a what's called a pocket laser rangefinder. So imagine you're golfing. You don't golf, but they golf. You have a rangefinder, and I can shoot a flag stick. We'll stick with the golf analogy. But I can shoot a ridgeline, and it tells me the distance. Well, on my on my GPS, it shows me the coordinates for that position. So then I can then relay those coordinates to a pilot should we take contact from that ridgeline in five minutes. I've already annotated that as a possible point of origin so that when the pilot comes on and we're taking contact and I've got my head down, I can relay this coordinate to the pilot. This all falls on you. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, head, headspace for that. I mean, how did you not let the craziness drown out what your job was, what your mission was. You have to, it's an, it's an immense amount of trust that every single one of us is just as important as the next. Mm. Um, and 
that's that's ultimately everything that I'm about, right? Is that, yeah, I worked for four years to get to the point I was to be the tip of the spear so that I could be the one that calls on the radio to, you know, take all the noise and make it silent and make sure that all my teammates could get out of a hot area safely. Um, but every single one of the people on the teams, whether their job is medical or, you know, explosive ordnance disposal or the team leader, the team sergeant, um, weapons, right? They all have a role that they are incredibly proficient at. Uh, mine just so happens to have to be on all the time. So there's calm in knowing that I haven't, I haven't turned it off, hmm. which sounds uh, like an oxymoron, but it's actually calming knowing that I've done everything I can and I'm not going to take a moment for granted because that moment could be the difference between life and death. For not just you, for everybody. For everybody. So you're a responsibility guy. So we start picking up inter-team communication from enemy radio traffic and my interpreter is in the back of the vehicle with me as well. And we are going through a dried riverbed um, and, or a wadi. And the first vehicle goes through and up and out the other side in a defensive posture. And then our vehicle starts to go through. The ICOM chatter says that uh, the enemy are watching us. They're counting our vehicles. They're wondering if we're going to get out of the vehicle. the middle of the night? Middle of the day. It was probably 10 a.m. when this happened. And my interpreter, again, is telling me these things. He's interpreting uh, the posture on the radio. And I'm relaying it through my radio to the team inside. So everybody knows what's going on. We don't see any activity anywhere. There's a small village about 300 meters to our southeast. And uh, as our vehicle starts to come up and out the other side of this large wadi, uh, I place my hands up on top of the turret and lean back into my heels because it's pretty steep coming out the other side. And that's when the IED went off underneath the rear axle uh, of the vehicle I was riding in, disabling the vehicle. Uh, And when I opened my eyes, I had been flipped up on top of the turret and facing the other direction, I could see nothing but the orange dust and haze from the displaced earth, and I could smell and taste the chemical noxious taste of the homemade explosive device that had went off. I knew instantly exactly what had happened, and um, as I started to right the ship and sit up, I put my helmet back on and put my Peltors, which are the headsets and radio that I can communicate with, put my headset back on, had a laceration on my throat from my from my helmet chin strap and I looked down and I could see the bottoms of both of my feet looking up at me and I was losing blood into the cabin. Enzo, my interpreter, was unconscious in the floorboard and um, I grabbed my weapon and started to scan that village because I was expecting enemy activity to follow on. But Meaning nothing. people are about to come at you to right, try to that's kill the, you. That's the tactic and that's what we trained for, that they're going to disable a vehicle and then they're going to and then they're going to attack. That's going to be the initiator. So tax dollars take into effect, and I grab my weapon and start scanning the village. I start communicating to the team leader that uh, I don't see any activity in the village. Enzo has a broken leg, and I've got two broken legs, and I need a medic. Is it just you? That Are you the only one that's conscious? Luckily, the vehicles are phenomenal. And I actually changed the TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, for the entire, for all of combat controllers that were not allowed to ride in the back of trucks anymore because everybody inside was fine. The vehicles are built 
to withstand these blasts. What do you, what do you call this day? Is there a day that you refer to it as? So from from henceforth, that day is called my alive day. Alive right? day. Because I was blessed to have woken up and to be set on a new path that I'm still walking down today. I just got chills. I'm literally walking down. And, and I, and I want to make sure we're, we're painting this picture, too, where people can, you know, as much as you want to share, you know, within reason. Yeah. What was the next few hours like? I mean, what did what did you do to actually go and make this alive day something that wasn't the day that you met Jesus yet? Right. Maybe you just met the wizard. Yeah, exactly. Well, it wasn't for long. Like I said, I was probably only, it was like I blinked and it was the loudest noise that I'd ever heard. And I can, you know, if I close my eyes, I can, I can replay the noise. Um, and for the next several weeks, actually, any time that I did close my eyes or fall asleep in the hospital, I would hear that noise and I'd be woken up. And, um, but the process was, the medic made it to the truck. They start working on both of us. They patch up both my legs. I had to be the one to put two tourniquets on bo- on one of my legs myself. Um, my medic put on another one. About 15 minutes after the blast, and the medics have been working on us, patching us up to get us exfilled, um, which came an hour later. The, f- the second medic said, do you want any morphine? I was like, yes. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. Why are you just now offering me pain pain meds? I hadn't even thought of that didn't even cross my mind, but I was um, talking just like I'm talking to you now. I was able to be calm. It's not like it is in the movies. Were you in shock, you think? Uh, I had lost a lot of blood. Uh, I knew because of the training what shock was, but um, probably. What a bad. I don't believe I was in shock, but, you know. I got. I stepped on a pine cone two weeks ago at my Same in-laws' thing. lake house, and I literally was screaming and crying. I went inside and woke my wife up, and I was like, "I don't. I might need to go to the doctor." I'm not <laughs> joking because I stepped on a pine cone. So there's a reason that people like you are real her- heroes, and there's a reason that I'm a realtor and a podcast host. Yeah. Um, walk us through the recovery, and again, this is just the theme of the why I wanted to do this and just introduce you all to these incredible people I have in my life, but. What an extreme version of a badass where um, I'm going to just kind of give you all some some breakaways. Johnny, some of the stuff he's done in the last few years. So mind you, this is post-recovery. And that was 2011. 2011. And the recovery process, 33 surgeries, is that right? I've had 32 limb salvage surgeries God. on both my legs to keep my legs. God. So at that time, uh, surgeons were getting a lot of repetitions of just lopping off limbs because everyone was having the same type of injuries. There are no better advances. Is lopping in off the, limbs fancy for amputation? amputation yep. Okay. And we can say that. You probably wouldn't want to say that. But um, there's no better time in the medical field, uh, especially in orthopedics, to learn and progress than war. I thought you were going to say job security. <laughs> well, it is good job security. Yeah. Um, and things have slowed down, so they've had to reorganize. But there were so many of these that the gentlemen that I found myself uh, being worked on by my surgeon, my physical therapist, and my prosthetist had all created a process of limb salvage to be able to get me to where I am today. And today, you know, I've spent the last, I spent three years then, 32 surgeries to keep my legs with, and my ankles are fused, so my feet will never move again, but I wear braces, which allow me to do everything like you mentioned earlier. So I can still skydive and I ran the Dallas half marathon last year. Of course so, you did. Um, I don't recommend anybody run though. Silly. Even y'all with, with good ankles. I don't recommend it. We don't do it right. Yeah. Do you run? 
Um, not, not well. Not far. Yeah, no, not well. No, if you want to call it run, I was like, yeah, I run away from a lot of things, like yeah. my feelings. <laughs> um, so, again, obviously, I think people that are watching this are going to be just kind of shook that the fact that you have this spirit of you that I know Jesus is is, is the center of your life. But a lot of people just quit. And I think that's a theme that you and I will run across with, you know, what you're doing now in the mortgage industry. And as an entrepreneur, yeah. you're going to see people that just don't have they don't have it in them. It's one thing to quit real estate or to power through in, in the job of a, in the life of a salesperson, but 32 surgeries, right? You're getting there. You can't see your legs. You can't feel your legs. I mean, this is a very cliche horror story, but I'm for real where most people choose the path of resistance of just like, I can't at least resistance. I can't, I'm just going to quit. I'm going right. to, my life is not going to have meaning moving forward, but you did the exact opposite. I right? was blessed to, you know, like I started with the that pipeline, that attrition process, getting all these reps at failing, mm. but for a purpose, and recognizing that without knowing you were going to have this kind of—I don't know if you want to call it a failure, but exactly you did it because that's what you're trained to do. Right. You just keep you just keep going. People ask, you know, that question. You know, how did you not get down on yourself? And for me, it has always been, well, it's never been about why me, but what's next. Mm. Right. So I. On the battlefield, I was never looking at my legs and thinking, oh, no, I'm never going to be able to do this again, or I'm never going to do this again, or I'm going to lose my legs. Legitimately never crossed my mind. It was only about how do I get myself out of this position so that my team can move on safely without me. I never thought about what that process was going to look like. But I was blessed to have had done the diligence in my life up to that point to have the right people in my circle, the best network possible, the faith uh, that I was grounded in to go to combat and be willing to die, uh, to be able to support me and lift me up and to show me what it meant to go from being the tip of the spear to being now introduced to everybody else in my life that made up the rest of that spear. Do you even consider what happened to you a tragedy? Absolutely not. I consider it the best thing that ever happened to me now. That's crazy. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, you know, one of your other podcast guests said that, you know, he would say that getting knocked out in that first fight was the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah. As he realized he'd probably be a better manager than a boxer. <laughs> yeah, he he right? probably has his, his wits to him. Too. There's, there's a turning point. There's something that happens, something, something big. And a lot of us are different levels of stubbornness, right? So sometimes it doesn't have to be big. Sometimes it could be as subtle as where's my Snapple? Right, Golly, where is my Snapple? I'm referencing prior podcasts, yeah, right? Well, look but at that. This guy's you had an, had an investor that, yeah. that loves Snapple. Snapple wasn't there, and he realized that it's probably a good time to short that stock. Cause, mm. And it was a great move. But for me, I was stubborn and hard-headed enough that it took an explosion in Afghanistan to put my life firmly on the path that I'm supposed to be on now. Something tells me you still would have figured it out, but that gave you a different platform where you can go and help people, which leads me yes. into my next question. You Again... You take this opportunity, an opportunity, not a, not a tragedy, this blessing, not even a blessing in disguise. It was a blessing, and you want to go and help people through it. And obviously speaking to tens of thousands of people, I know you've done stuff like this hundreds of times. I've seen you speak without knowing you were the keynote multiple times. But what was that trigger? Maybe as an entrepreneur, as a business person, how did you go and actually take the brand you had now, you know, serving in the, in the Air Force, and turn it into charitable outreach? What did that look like? I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm wearing a different uniform, right? 
my commitment to service, like I started with my parents, and them demonstrating what it meant to put others before yourself, put your country before yourself, uh, I'm just doing that now wearing skinny jeans, you know? Are those, thank you for not having holes in them. At least, yeah. And yeah, I definitely don't have holes in my jeans. And spoken jeans. like a true 38-year-old. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if they call them skinny jeans anymore. I, well, I'm just, you know. At least they fit. This is I have one pair of pants that fit, and they're about eight inches too short. So Maybe skinny jeans would be selling out. Yeah, we're not wanna, here. I don't want to sell out. Yeah, those yeah. are, he's, he's wearing baggy jeans. I do have holes in my jeans. But uh, you didn't but buy them I earned these holes because my braces are carbon fiber, and they eat through the jeans. Same. Uh, but... I had a turning point in my life where I had to make the decision to get out of the military. That's a difficult phone call from my commander. What do you want to do? We're going to fight to keep you in the military if that's what you want to do, or you can be medically retired and figure out something else. And I talked about that with my friends and family and made the decision that if I couldn't do everything in the military, I didn't want to do anything in the military, and I knew that God would find something else for me to uh, lean into and uh, immediately when I retired, I started working for nonprofits and pouring back into the same people that I was working alongside that were being wounded in combat as well, uh, helping building specially adapted homes. Uh, and uh, just. What know. about Boots for Warriors? What, what, tell us about Boots for Warriors. And then putting custom fit cowboy boots on their feet. Did you or say their prosthesis. custom fit cowboy boots? I did. did you yeah. Just yeah, I don't mind uh, throwing a little bit of twang in there yeah. you know, every time. I like that. That's real nice. That's the Netherlands in you. <laughs> that is. That's <laughs> the most, yeah. nether, I guess, Dutch. Dutch. Yeah, Dutch. I was like, I almost said Netherlandish. Yeah, but nope, not. you did say it. Yeah, that's why my parents held me back on the drive to Dallas. It's and, obvious. Yeah, still probably should get held back. But uh, again, the mindset, man, the, the perspective that you've got, I mean, this obviously has to be grounded in something from, you know, your faith and your family. But did you ever reach a point where you considered just being, you know, just throwing in the towel, right? No. I, mean, oh, I, I don't even it. have a towel. Do you have a towel? I ha- I'm a sweater. Yeah. I'm, I actually, this is a sweater, but yeah. No, I, I get it. No, but I'm saying it's such a I, it's such I a just, weird thing. It is a cliche to say never quit, right? But, yeah. Um. No, no, I can't quit. I um, I've got big goals, and you can't quit if you have big goals because as soon as you let's say you achieve it, that goal is always going to be evolving into something else. There's always going to be something that you're still looking for. So um, for me, I thrive on finishing things, right? So I have to set small goals so that I can finish things and get enough reps at being successful in finishing things. Like breakfast. Yeah. Or... You talk about service. I know we know this podcast is, is ultimately about, you know, selling without selling out and, um, you know, the business world. How does that, how does what I did on the battlefield apply to business world? And it's just that. It's that. I cared enough about other people to put myself in harm's way in the same way that I care enough about uh, my mortgage clients enough to uh, stay up late at night or wake up early to crank out something that they need to help them make one of the biggest decisions of their lives. So I'm wearing a different uniform, but I'm still doing the same amount of service and keeping American people safe. Do you wear a name tag? The mortgage? No. Okay, good. I was I gonna say you can wear card. you can wear a uniform, but like you you know I don't know if Nappy Boy on the on the name tag for the mortgage industry would maybe it would translate. Who knows? Who yeah. knows these days? You yeah. know, I'm sure I could go viral on a TikTok and yeah. see again. Spoken like a guy that says I'm sure I could go viral on a TikTok. Exactly. There's there's Nappy Boy Jag Forty. I heard it on the radio on the way in. Really? I oh, thought I'd try to the AM radio. <laughs> yeah. 
what what's the what what's the what do you feel like your gift is to share with people? I mean, what what's the advice out of all these experiences you've had, and the most important worldly experience you're about to have with Brittany becoming um, becoming a husband, and then hopefully having a family and all that stuff that you're gonna you know be rewarded with, which you've so so much deserved. But what's the what's the takeaway? I know you speak to masses of people from young children to old people like me, but what do you want to leave people with? You just, you never give up, right? I mean, this life is, you have no idea how, how many of these days you're going to get, right? So don't take any of them for granted. And what I always talk about, what I always tell crowds is, um, you know, I'm only this image of success that you see today because of the people that I've chosen to surround myself with. So be intentional about the people that you spend the most amount of time with in your life. I think even that's a cliche. I'm sure a lot of people would say that. That's nothing new. But uh, no, but say I would have. I would have. I know for a fact. I would have crumbled. Had I not had the people in my life, and you know, one of your questions that I don't think we got to was, you know, what was one of the hardest things of the recovery process? It was not the physical stuff. It was never the physical stuff. They got drugs for that, right? I had methadone on a on an IV, right? 32 surgeries and doing rehab throughout, right? So taking mangled limbs with external fixators and now walking on a treadmill with it God. and bleeding and right um but the hardest part the hardest part is um you know, the mental stuff, right? The emotional stuff, the me and my family, we struggled a lot with that. You know, you we don't have, everything's not perfect. And then whenever you take a catastrophe or a trauma in your life, you throw everybody into one room, uh, it can get, it can get kind of nasty. It can get kind of difficult. Yeah. And we did not do that well, but I can tell you today that we're better for it, right? Yeah. We're a much closer family. Um, but I had incredible, you know, my faith, uh, my family and my friends that were there, they swarmed on me and made it possible to be the man I am today. So if I were to give any advice, it would be to be intentional about the people that you choose to surround yourself with. Because you're a product of them. Yes. You know, and I think that especially in, in the world that you're in now with, with doing mortgages in, in Texas and, you know, sometimes you have to, you just have to fight through different kind of mud and muck. And not that I've, like I fight through stuff that is not pleasant. Right. And I found that if I take negativity home, it has an effect on my wife and our daughter. And it's that's on me, you know, and I think just pivoting throughout the course of the day with like p real friendships. Right. Right. And finding people that you actually want to be around. So that's 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 the advice is to be intentional and to be selective with um, who you spend your time with. If you have these friends like you and talking about what you're going through right now, I'm going to be going through that in two years. Yeah. Right. You're going through it for a purpose. Mm hmm. The but, purpose is to turn around and be able to help those other people in your network. The, most people don't understand that. Like you're most going people give it up. Most people reason. don't have your fortitude, dude. And that's why your gift. That's why it's so exciting. And all these people are going to hear this and watch this. Is that like they need to hear it? And for people like you and me, within reason for me, it's a decision. We right. make a decision to make the best out of things. And you can't give up. And right, you've got to listen to multiple songs and sermons and. Right. You got to live like you're dying because you just never know. That is one of the best things of living a life where I got used to seeing my friends die. Mm. 
and now being so close with all these Gold Star families all over the country, um, I've spent Thanksgiving with Mark Forrester's family for the past 11 years straight. No way. Um, and I am committed to living a life that honors their willingness to sacrifice for so many people that they never knew. I love it. You're a selfless, um, intentional, just incredible man. And uh, before we forget, the most important plug we needed to give is not to your mortgage company, it's to the future Mrs. Exactly. Nappy Boy. Exactly. Um, she will never be called that. Mrs. Nappy Boy? No, it's not going to happen. Um, Mrs. Yellock? Mrs. Yellock. That's got a nice ring to it. Okay. Are, are, are you, this is a real question that you're not prepared for, and it's not on our cheat sheet. Are you more nervous about your wedding day than you were about being deployed? Mm, I would say, actually, I haven't been asked that before, but uh, I would say this is, it's very similar. <laughs> it is. Preparing for what we're about to do is very similar than preparing for a deployment. Do you feel like it's going to be harder? The marriage or the wedding? Both. I think marriage is, is meant to be hard. Anything worth doing is going to be difficult. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's the best kind of heart but ever. Through faith and and commitment to one another, I think that well, I know that we'll have more highs than lows, and it'll be. You'll be the best husband it'll ever. It'll be awesome. I look forward to to being a husband, and I know that she's looking forward to. I mean, I'm blown away that she's trying to hitch her wagon to me. Just hurry. I'm, just I'm, I know. Let's same. get it done. Just do it. Just yeah, I kept I was asking not planning Abby, a long like, engagement. I'm surprised she's still sticking around. But okay. Well, I'm just don't. don't incredibly woo. blessed. Just don't jinx it. On podcast 2.0, when we talk about the evolution of Nappy Boy, you'll have a wedding <laughs> ring on and um, yes. talk about how the hardest day of your life and the best day of your life is behind you. So yes. Um, thank you for being a friend and for uh, being a hero and for your selflessness and your perspective and for giving us the gift of um, I don't even, it, it, you're just, you're, you're, you got it all, man. You, you've, you've leveraged your brand, uh, more than anyone I've probably ever met. And I know it's only the tip of the iceberg in the business world as well. Last question. How do we support you? Where do we find you and your skinny jeans? <laughs> you don't want the jeans. Uh, but I do work for go prime mortgage. You can, uh, find me online at goprimewithjohnny.com Uh, and also on Instagram and Facebook. Johnny Yellock the second. Y E L L O C K. And the then, second. I got a dad out there who's the first. I like that. We share different content. But you have the same passion for cars. <laughs> yes, that's um, true. Johnny's a not a Porsche guy, Porsche. Yes. You learn that when you're around car people. Uh, well, th thanks for being Good on the work. Thank you very much. A Porsche. Thank you for doing this. This is incredible. Were you about to say thank you for your service? No. Thank Damn you it. for doing this. I was about to cry. I was like, <laughs> you're welcome. This is my contribution back to the world is, is a podcast. But. Uh, this is why I decided to do this, is for people like Johnny to have a platform that uh, is widespread and it gives you guys all, um, it's simple, right? I think it's so simple. It's so simple, but it's so hard Let's for some people. Chat. When you are faced with adversity, punch it in the freaking face and move on. And you've done that. Uh, so thank you for your service, for your friendship, and for uh, giving us all a reason to smile today. I'm Johnny Yellock, and this is how you sell without selling out. Roger's that.